That does not mean give me the middle finger, Doc. This is not how we do a family-friendly podcast. I don't know what I was counting to one. Sure, like your number one kind. I of I was one. doing it UGA style, man. Right, right, right. We'll go with that. Okay, so uh, that's why UGA team is number one because they can count that high. UGA isn't important. They're not a good. Thank school you. Nothing. I thought you were actually maybe you are literate ish. Ish. We'll go with ish. Um, <laughs> smart esque. You know, you throw ish and esque at the end of things, and you know, you, you just get the point across. Go Georgia so, Tech. Well, I mean, it's Georgia, so I mean, as long as you're not cousins, you're already ahead of the game, right? That is not a problem in Georgia. Uh-huh, I've heard stories, but anyway, maybe it's just an Atlanta thing. I don't know. Hey, are you crazy sci-fi fantasy and <laughs> sci-fi and fantasy fans? It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. And I assure you, I promise Doc's parents were not related when they got married, despite her being from Atlanta. It wasn't. She's not one of those. So don't don't listen to the rumors, people. And without further ado, we have returning guest, the one, the only, Mr. Declan Finn. Can you please introduce yourself to our viewers? Uh, sure. Declan Finn. I've published author of, if it's not 30 books yet, it will be by the end of March. Uh, I'm all over the place. I've been nominated for a Dragon Award three times, uh, twice in fantasy, sorry, twice in horror, once in apocalypse. So, of course, they canceled the apocalypse category. Uh, uh, I'm like... Literally from horror to urban fantasy to thrillers to, I haven't, well, technically you could say the current book is military sci-fi. I prefer space opera because military sci-fi implies I actually know what I'm doing. I don't. I just have people who tell me what to do and I make it up as I go along. Um, I've been writing since I was six, yes, 16. And basically it was this book that, warped my brain. Uh, oh, the nominations are already open. I have to get on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, fun. Oy. But uh, no, uh, that's the short version. The long version would probably take the next three hours. I need oh. to go to bed at some point. <laughs> yeah, you don't have that much wine left. I thought saw you throw the second open, uh, open bottle away. So, I mean, it's been a long day. There was no second open bottle? Uh-huh. Yeah, that was water, people. Water. Leftovers. water. Leftovers. There we go. So the second part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we first found them. So I actually met uh, Declan in person at RavenCon in 2016, I think. Uh, it was before I started writing and having stuff published. And what I remember most was his bright coat. I think it was orange, but I'm colorblind, so don't count on uh, getting that right. But his coat stood out, and we met at one of the history panels and started talking over... Uh, his books and somehow I walked away buying them and I didn't intend to buy any while I was there. I don't know how that happened. Um, it happens. I, I don't know, but he ended up taking my cold hard cash. So don't I guess ever I'll go for to you. a bookstore with me. You'll lose all your money. Did you spend it all in one place? No, I, I promptly put it in the bank. It's like, okay, you know what? It may have actually paid for the gas on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> So what about you, Doc? When did you meet the, the one, the only, the great Declan Finn? Uh, I think we originally met 
kind of online-esque. I was posting panel ideas for fantasy literature as my first time as a track director. And you commented on one of them, and then you're like, wait, how the hell did I end up on this panel? Nope. <laughs> we had some really great discussion point. <laughs> oh, no, I knew exactly how I ended up on that panel because I mouthed off on Facebook. <laughs> but at least you weren't punished. Maybe. True, true. Hey, uh, it was a nice panel. It's like, here's Tony Weisskopf. Here's Larry Niven. Here's Jody Lanai. I forget the lady I was sit sitting next to, but it's like, yeah, I can't get a better panel than this. So, yeah, it, it's that. Um, I do. So, if you're ever wondering, I do read the comments when we post things, and sometimes you end up on panels because of them. But, um, and then. We so we met that Dragon Con, but we really got to talk, I think, more at Liberty Con. So probably calmer. I, I heard Liberty Con is less of a con and more of a drinking convention. Depends on which crowd you hang out with. It it's more of like a giant book discussion. Mm. Okay. Well, okay. What's what's the ratio of writers to just people attending? It's like three to one. I did the math one year, and it was like four to one. Close. So, is this a good thing or a bad thing? To oh, it's awesome. Well, it depends. If you like to read, it's great. It's amazing. If you want to talk to authors, meet authors, it's awesome. If you're illiterate, you'll probably be very bored. They do have, have a room and they do have a spades tournament. So, I mean, there is some other stuff for you, but. Yeah, but you don't have to go to a convention to play spades. No. But Those pickup games are pretty very easy to careful find. If you're playing against David Weber, he is very cutthroat. Does he cheat? He does not cheat. He, he will tell you he doesn't need to cheat. Yeah, I, I can believe that. But I've also seen him look at people and go, "You know, I can kill you in a book." And so, I mean, it's like that's not fair either. <laughs> so you know. Yeah. All right. So... I've been redshirted by David Weber. That should be a T-shirt. Although it probably is somewhere. <laughs> All I got People was paid for the honor. I believe it. I, I remember Larry Correa talking about, yeah, I need to kill off all these guys named Mike. I didn't know I had this many fans named Mike. <laughs> because Make it a convention of Mike's and then blow up the convention with like some sort of monster and you get them all in one shot. He actually suggested, you know, blowing up an entire caravan of Mike's. <laughs> But yeah. then you have to list the last names, and it can get a tedious listly listicle, I guess. I don't know. Is that even yeah. a word? It is now. We're going. I don't know. Here. Just do like the litter PG people and put them in a table in the middle of your book. True. Mm -hmm. Is that cheating? Does it count as red shirting? I don't know. All I know is I, I have my never-ending quest. I have my never-ending quest to be the Joe Buckley of my generation. You, you intend to be killed off by every author you can find. Yes. yes. Okay. I've got, I mean, I've got 12 that I know of. Hold on. One guy hit it kind of badly. Something about, well, you know, we'll talk offline. I'll tell you. It's it's gruesome. Uh, and this is a family-friendly show. Doc, Terry Mixon loves to kill you. I think he has several characters named JR in the city. He's killed me four times that I, I think four. Once I got killed by a, a young lady on her first um, cycle, and she was not feeling good, so she killed me with a rake. Which oh. was strangely appropriate. I don't know. We'll go with that. Okay, I made a note to kill you. So Thank you. Thank you. See, he does like me. Welcome. All right, Doc. You ready for the religion questions? <laughs> okay. Star Wars, 
Last Starfighter or Wing Commander? That one's going to be easy. Um, Star Wars. I do have. I have always been a fan of old serials, which that's what George Lucas stole. Uh, he even said he did Star Wars because he couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon. Um, so, and of course, the pacing helps. Where it's like, yeah, every fifteen minutes, there's something going sideways. <laughs> Sometimes so. that's not how my life feels, so I identify with this. Yes, and seriously, how can you how can you uh, beat Alec Guinness? He was just the best actor. Period. Um, he's got some slight competition, but nowhere not too close. And damn few. So okay, so now we go with ooh, these are all really good, except I haven't seen the last one. First Night, Excalibur, or The Green Knight. Well, that one's going to be easier. Because uh, if you want to see The Green Knight on film, first, go see something called Sword of the Valiant. It stars Sean Connery as The Green Knight. I forget who else was in the bloody thing, because it's Sean Connery. Do we need anyone else? You don't need um, anybody else. But uh, I saw First Night. It's like, why is Richard Gere in this movie? Why is he swinging a sword? Why am I watching this? Uh, but so I have to, I have to go with Excalibur. It's, it's got, the best. It, it really is, and even if it was just for the music, you know. I did specify in the notes, dear listener. I realize there's been several versions of that that movie, movies with the same name. We specified the 1981's version because reasons. Because that's the oh, best yeah. thing to come out of 1981. Pretty Why? much, you know. You got both. As I said, the best thing to come out of 1981. <laughs> I'm, and, I'm hurt. I, I came oh, out of 1982. I've got no horse in this race. I came but, out of 81. I'm, that's a good uh, vintage is all I'm saying. And she did not because she's a baby. Well, I, You're the old man. I'm the same age as Declan. <laughs> well, look at it this way, JR. You've got competition with a film that stars Liam Neeson, Patrick Stewart, uh, pretty much Wagner running most of the soundtrack Connery. except for Oh Fortuna. What? Is Connery in it? Connery is not in that one. He's in uh, First Night, uh, 95. Uh, and he's in the Sword of the Valiant movie that I mentioned. Do not ask me what year that is. I want to say it's the 80s by the cinematography. But it's been a while since I've watched it. Now you have your weekend assignment when you're not writing. So with, between your book that you finished in the morning and the new one that you finished in the afternoon, you, know, you could slot in a movie. Yeah, it, it would be nice. I usually fit in that sort of stuff after 5 o'clock. My wife insists on seeing me in day... Well, not even daylight hours anymore. We go pitch black by 5 now. Um, That's what you get for living up north. Uh, this it's got is that little white stuff, too. Mm. This is true. I although, figure it's gross. <laughs> yeah. Although, heck, uh, last, this time last year, I was talking with uh, Denton Saul uh, on my podcast, uh, and it was the day in February where Texas got hit with that massive snowstorm that knocked out all the power. Mm -hmm. We literally wrapped up and his power died. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> and, you know, it, the, the camera was glitching while we were having the podcast. It's like, well, this is odd. Do we know what's causing this? No. Then we wrap up. All of Texas, all of, all of uh, Dallas goes dead. <laughs> it's like, well, timing. Even Texas gets whacked by snow. Freaking evil. I was in Texas when they had to close Fort Bliss because of a winter storm. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hate snow. I don't know anyone who really likes snow. 
It's like, oh, you like snow? Devils. Devils like snow. My friend likes snow, but she also likes UGA. So there you go. Uh, so what would be your first love? Uh, Sci-fi, fantasy, or horror for you? Because I know you, you, you know horror, too. Well, believe it or not, I generally dislike horror because it's too nihilistic and it's not scary. It's most most of what they say is horror. It's like it's dark fantasy, guys. Can, 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 it's not scary. Stop. I don't know why anyone finds Stephen King scary or a good writer. I try reading his stuff, and it's like, why are we? Why am I reading a prepubescent orgy in the sewers? Who who published this? Um, so I generally don't write. I, I write horror. Even that was by accident. Uh, I was researching demons. I had researched serial killers when I was a teenager. Um, as one that's does. normal. Yeah, as one does. I, I, I thought they were entertaining, and I thought they'd make for interesting story fodder. And then I realized they've all got daddy issues and mommy issues. And it's like, whiny little bitches, shut up. Um but I wound up combining serial killers and demons. And by the time I was done with like chapter four, I had to write my publisher and go, remember how you wanted an urban fantasy? You might get a horror. <laughs> but, yeah. But no, my, my first love is probably science fiction. And I say that only because my earliest memory of either genre goes back to when I was like six or seven. And um, the original Star Trek would go on the air at six o'clock every day, every weekday. And I, I knew exactly what time it was because I would come in early and I would catch the end of Little House on the Prairie, which is surreal because the end of Little House on the Prairie, the credits, just the credits, is a little girl running through the fields and the little gr girl grew up to marry Bruce Boxleitner on Babylon 5, <laughs> Melissa Gilbert, the actress, who literally married Bruce Boxleitner in real life. And it's very disorienting to realize that now. But, uh, so like I said, it's probably science fiction with Star Trek, assuming you just don't consider Star Trek to be a uh, space Western as Gene Roddenberry originally pitched it. You know, wagon train to the stars. My um, problem Gene drank with, a lot. My problem with Star Trek is- Well, Gene was also an army engine. He was a CB, wasn't he? I know Mel Brooks um, was. I don't know, but I do know he was from El Paso, which explains a lot. I just know that Star Trek, it doesn't seem to understand basic human nature. Oh, we're just going to do everything because we're good people and never get paid. What's money? Oh, huh, they do things for money. Like, it was just too clean and neat. Oh, yeah. Just, uh, looking back at it now, none of Star Trek holds up. And I mean, none of it. People will say, oh, the first few seasons of Next Generation sucked, but it got better. It's like, have you watched them lately? And I mean, any of them. You know, even looking at Deep Space Nine, I'm going, you know what? This cinematography looks like somebody shot it through cheesecloth. So you know what, first, bro, let, I let love me it. say okay. the hate mail can go to uh, Doc Seska. At Excuse me. Do not send the hate mail over Star Trek to me because but, I'll agree with them. Okay. What, what I was going to say was the only Star Trek that I actually liked was the modern remake where they casted it like the alternate dimension one. So they yeah. redid, basically they started from scratch without the, the drama of the two competing organizations that own rights to various parts of it. They just said, well, we'll just go alternative reality. And then they reshot everything. And I actually like those movies. They, 
were okay. I kind of enjoyed those. I actually don't mind the new movies because they capture the flavor of what Star Trek had been, the, the original Star Trek. Yeah, no, I think they're a good callback with some updating. Yes. And I found the acting on whoever played Spock and whoever played McCoy. Carl, Carl, Carl Urban? Carl Urban was McCoy. Uh, it's not Keith Urban. Keith Urban is <laughs> country it's music country. singer. And don't even ask me who the hell did Spock anymore. But I saw both of them in the theater the first time, and it's like, were they possessed briefly by the ghost of these actors? Because they're kind well, of no, scary. Because Nimoy was still alive. No, point take. Yeah, that's got a cameo in that. In that yeah, movie. it's like, damn, they're channeling. <laughs> that's called it's called acting. But, yes, uh, but so few people act anymore. <sighs> mostly, like, they just repeat lines in front of a green screen and let the CGI do everything. Yes. Uh, when we want good character actors, we have to import them from stage uh, trained, classically trained stage actors from other countries. Oh, yeah. Especially um, with well, the. Hmm? Two of my favorite captains in Star Trek were all classically trained theater. Earl Grey, hot. I can't So, exactly Patrick Stewart that. and Kirk? No, Ben Sisko. Yeah, I was going to say. I knew it was okay, that's right. Sorry. So, I will say. You say Avery Brooks, my first thought is, oh, yes, he, he teach, he's a college professor in English. And, and acting. I, yeah, and acting. I, I, you know, my first thought is, yes, college professor, and then, you know, classically trained is somewhere down the list. But it's like, it should be higher, I know. But my brain stores things funny. If you, if you dive off the uh, the deep end of Star Trek lore, they've done an interview with, with um, the guy that played Kirk, William oh, Shatner. Shatner. There we go. Um, and he was talking about how uh, when they had first done the first seasons and they canceled it and then they hadn't gotten the okay to redo some of them, some of the guys had told them, like the story, they were uh, POWs and NOM. They were some of the first exchanged POWs before they locked that stuff down and how like reenacting just over like the dialogue part, obviously, some of that stuff kept them sane while they were you know being tortured by the, the Vietnamese army. So oh. it's, it's kind of moving to think something like that, you know, touched people but oh yeah I, I mean they're judging it in the period of the time where what was available like parallel to it as opposed to we're looking back on it now and seeing what we can make now and then looking at it and so i don't know that we're necessarily being fair to it but probably it was not kind of cool that that it had that effect on people because ultimately oh, yeah. when you create content isn't that what you want you want to affect people amen so all right, we will stop dithering with uh, Doc's weird obsession with Star Trek. Uh, it's not weird; it's perfectly normal and natural. Sure, normalish. What you uh, do to pizza is weird. Uh, lots of sausage and bacon and ham. Mm, the good stuff. Pineapple. No, stop that heresy. All right. So, what is your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction? Already told Lord? you that Star Trek. No. no. Because there's a chance it could have been a game. Because he's of an age where games existed. Uh, actually, no. Six or seven is before I got anywhere near my first video game. Unless you want to count Space Invaders. That counts. Oh, I'm going yeah. with it. Go with that Trump. That is only wanting to go with it so he can be right. You uh, your in, mouth, woman. In, in which case, Space Invaders on the original Atari. Okay, I've played that. I even have a little... Uh, one of the, it's like a little keychain that has the Space Invaders arcade, but you can actually play it. <laughs> it's so cool. Don't judge me, Doc. I have cool things oh, decorated in my judged. office, guys. 
It's just decorating my desk, all right? It just adds character. It's decoration, I say. All right. So stop stop judging eyes. Stop those judging eyes, Doc. So what is it about speculative fiction as a genre that you love? Stop judging me. I see it. Well, it's think of it as fantasy with different a different magic system. Uh, you know, it a lot of the technology that winds up getting used is at best speculative and yeah we might be able to get here theoretically one of these days but it's like eh screw it we're gonna have lightsabers now <laughs> so uh, although i did make sure to put the one laser sword i did use in my fantasy genre because i wasn't going to go all right so how do we explain laser swords i'm not never mind i can explain telescopic weapon telescopic telescoping weaponry like you know swords and staffs so we can work with that. And it's basically, I do like getting into a lot of the nitty gritty of some technical details. I am a nerd, just not that big of one. Uh, although I was quite happy when um, a friend of mine and a fellow author and a materials scientist said, yeah, I read the book. I liked it. I only had one thing make me cringe, which is an improvement. So it's like, yes. Uh, <laughs> So um, it's just fun. And a lot of what I wind up doing is, you know what the best part of sci-fi is, spec speculative fiction, is designing alien cultures. You know, uh, with fantasy, yeah, sure, you might be able to design a culture or two or three. But um, like, oh, look, aliens, I can make a hundred of these and I don't have to explain any different magic systems. I don't have to explain how you know, magic works with all these folks. You know, I don't have to explain orcs and elves. It's like, yeah, they're from another planet. Here's a culture. And I'm a historian by training. So it's like culture. This is why okay. I like him. So the one thing that bugs me when people write aliens is where you have, oh, they're ex aliens. So all of them are like this. And I'm like, yeah, there are some, you know, like, creature specific like you know if they're not adapted to the sun then sure sun bugs them but i mean you're going to have oddities and when all their their characters are like carbon copies and clones of each other it gets a little like eh, really i mean you're going to have the outlier that's the weird kid right and whatever weird looks like and, and they very rarely do they capture that when they show aliens it's like no they're a elf so they're all like this every single last one of them down to the microscopic and like no that's not how characters work that's not how people work yeah, even we can lodge a lot of criticism on the original Star Trek, but even among Vulcans, which let's face it, were as cookie cutter a race as you could probably manage, it's like then you go to what was it, Amok Time. Spock is having his period, and the girl they were he was supposed to be set up with was a totally manipulative bitch. And it's like, wait, hold on, Vulcans can have these. <laughs> so you know, even among original you know, Star Trek, you did have some of that kicking around. Uh, but yeah, with some of the cultures of, yes, everybody is monochromatic. Uh, Klingons, I found particularly uh, irksome in that fashion because there was never a bookish Klingon. <laughs> there was one. Really? Yes. I can't remember. I know Alexander was in part. Okay. Well, was it, it, uh, not fully... Uh, Klingon, wasn't he a half-breed? He was kind of, he was after fashion. Force. 
And he was raised by Russians, which are as close as we get to Klingons on Earth. So my problem with Klingons is they never, they were supposed to be this fearsome warlike race. And then I can't remember her name, the blonde security officer that died. Asha Yar. Yeah. Asha Yar. She, she's kicking their, they're like these giant things. They dwarf over her in size. They're supposedly the most fearsome race of warriors. And like these tiny little human women are like throwing them around and beating the crap out of them. I'm like, who the hell was scared of a Klingon? They're the most pansy race I've ever seen. And more hate mail can go to Doc. <laughs> I was never impressed with them. Like the Romulans always seem more warlike and like a legitimate threat than the Klingons. They are. Shut up. <laughs> I wanted to be a Klingon when I was a kid. Okay. I mean, it explains a lot. You're a lover, not a fighter. Are you sure about that? I mean, if you're going to be a Klingon, because they certainly weren't doing much in the way of fighting. Tasha Yar beat them up. Tasha Yar. She, uh, considering how quickly that character died and she died in a sludge pit, let's not use her as an example. Yes, but a sludge pit could kill her, but a Klingon couldn't. What's that say about the Klingons? That that was a so, poorly written episode. So, how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition <laughs> into you writing stories in this space before we start a feud that will never be solved? <laughs> Well, uh, this originally started as fan fiction. No, I will not mention what it originally started as. Um, mainly because, you know, I now, first of all, I didn't even know what fan fiction was at the time. It was just an annoying short story I had in the back of my head about, you know, one particular show. It's like, okay, I'm going to write one short story. I'll get it out of my system. It'll go away. You see how well that's worked. Uh this was my first writing project, uh, and, well, as I keep saying on my blog about my entire writing career, and then it spiraled. Um, it spiraled, in this case, into a six-book series that was poorly uh, counted as six books, because I was 16, I knew nothing about publishing, so, hey... Uh, you know, every book is like 350 to 400 pages, right? No right, problem. Tolkien, Sanderson. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I did not realize that in publishing, they, those pages are counted as double-spaced and with one-inch margins. And I was working with, you know, 98-era uh, Microsoft Word. So the default uh, margins were fairly small, the spaces, you know, it was single spaced all the way. And after the first six books, I probably got, you know, Orson Scott Card says the first million words of writing are practice. I probably got all million out of the way by the time I was done. So if so, you didn't guess, uh, he's jumped ahead to answering this question specific to the sci-fi product we're going to talk about later, but this was generally speaking the more broad ranged question so we'll, we'll come back to some more of the specifics dear listener if you're slightly confused he's answering for the uh the book we're going to talk about i'm not trying to be rude but i know they're used to a certain thing and we don't want to confuse them so, okay my apologies my apologies no, no no nothing to apologize for it's interesting stuff but Jared's just, just want... doing this because he's getting confused i am not confused i'm confusable but not confused right now but i you also know here. what we're here to talk about that is your so. default state of being i've met you well, maybe it's your fault. I don't know. I'll find a way. Give me a few minutes. It is my fault. Okay. I use words and math. 
Well, math is it's not real. It's a government conspiracy. Uh, so, but what he's telling you though is how he transitioned into writing from being a fan of of literature. This was the book that we're going to interview him of. Was that first project correct? Oh yeah, uh, Bite Ups was the first project. It went through at least three different titles. By the time I was done, it was originally, I don't even remember what the original title was anymore. I think it had to do with Rangers in the title. And, you know, about five, ten years ago, I realized, wow, you used the word Ranger and you skip across how many genres and how many types. And after a while, it's like, wow, this is going to be so generic a title. Let's change it. <laughs> so do you remember what it was originally intended to be fanfic of? Yes, I do. I would like people. Or... I would like people to guess. Uh, there are some people who have said, "Oh yeah, sure, I could kind of see this," and there are some people who said, "Yeah, this has very little relationship to what you're talking about." So, you know, if, if people can play it out, fine. I, I don't want to give it away. So basically, come up, whisper it in his ear, and if you're right, he might tell you. <laughs> he also might tell you to grab a breath mint. So just be warned. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've seen some of the people at cons. I'm just saying. Hey, take I a shower. Fun. Take a shower. That's all I'm saying. I take two showers a day at cons. Isn't that like a rule? The, the like you have to sign your pledge when you go in. I will shower every day. Or is, is that just the rumor? No, I just make you do it. <laughs> so the good news is, if you want to go to Dragon Con, however, it's so small that's not really a problem. You have so much room for all twelve people that it's not a big deal. <laughs> I'm trying to teach JR scientific notation. He just forgets that the ta ta 10 to the whatever power is also part of the actual number. <laughs> yeah. Science, science. I'm going to invert the polarity of my dilithium crystal. I, I got this. <laughs> Hand wavy on, buddy. I broke your scientific brain. Jacqueline. Although I, I think uh, if you mix that Doctor Who trope with that Star Trek trope, I think you blow up the ship. Fair. But I took Betty Crocker calculus in college and um, physics for dummies. So all the non-math and science major classes, I was in those. But then physics was hard, so I took geology because that was easy. Okay. So, oh. but speaking of college experiences and life experiences... Um, were there any moments that really formed who you are as a storyteller? Nice transition. Aside from all the reading I do, um, it would have to be, well, my studies in history. Uh, but then again, I went out of my way to take history because I figure what would help me best tell stories. And it's like, oh, look, history is nothing but stories. And while it has been extremely useful, one graduate paper turned into five books, literally. Um, and I've used it in pretty much everything I've ever you ever ever written. Looking back, I probably should have just taken a degree in marketing. <laughs> that or have become an electrician and learned how to kill people and murder mysteries with faulty wiring. Fair, fair. Uh, that is not an admission, Mr. FBI man who is listening right now. Uh, he does not want you to ask about the about the electrical issues that killed his uh, people below his apartment. Nothing to do with him, I swear. He has an alibi. Just read his shirt. Um, all right, Doc. 
you're not even going to jump into my bad jokes? No. All right. Ask the next question. No, I'm just going to let you hang yourself. Refreshing technique I'm trying. New year, new techniques. Um, So, but getting into some of the writing things and, uh, but more importantly, fans, have you had any cool fan art or a cosplay of a character yet? Uh, I've had two, I've had a few pieces of fan art. Um, One fan actually enjoyed my stuff so much that she wound up designing covers for me. Um, yes, the next person who is also a fan of my work who designed started designing covers for me. Uh, I married, so uh, <laughs> oh, don't do that. You're going to run out of wives and have to convert religions. <laughs> uh, no, 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 yeah, don't worry about that. She's she likes all of my stuff, and I think that's why she married me. But that could be a I could be wrong about that. Uh, don't ask too many questions, Declan. Don't ask. I don't. I know better. Just but, say yes, beard. <laughs> but uh, that's the the secret of a long marriage. I'm told. I'll let you know if I figure it out. I don't know. I never said yes to her. So. <laughs> well, that's why you you're not married right now. If you had just said yes to her more. Well, I, I'm, I'm. You know what? It's not my fault. I have good taste. Well, I'm going into year four, so I must be doing something right. We haven't killed each other yet. Well done. And, and uh, speaking of not killing each other, because uh, you don't let any of your characters be sacred cows. You kill them willy-nilly. Uh, which one of your characters, this is my a poor attempt at a segue. I'll do better next time, dear listener. But uh, which, stop, Doc, I see you. Uh, which of your characters from your sci-fi series would you like to see cosplayed? Any of the aliens, uh, specifically anyone in the Renar, uh, because I designed them so that they'd be they'd be unique, uh, yet vaguely human-ish, but it's like metallic skin that you basically need makeup like the Tin Man uh, in some kind of metallic hue, uh, a bone crest, almost a helmet that's the, that looks kind of like some kind of stone, although the cute trick would be the bitonal eyes, <laughs> because I'm not sure co- even contact lenses can make your pupils look one color and your iris look something different. So you you think about things when you're building your aliens. So did you come up with a justification for the, the forehead ridge that you gave them? Um, in, you mean the external bone crest period or how, yes. how they look? The, the the well the bone crest affects how they look. So what made like what was the biological determinative factor for them to create that? Did you even think like that or just oh. go, oh, this is cool? No, I, I thought that was cool, mainly because let's Fair face enough. it, uh I haven't seen a lot of external bone crests since what? Babylon five? And that's <laughs> a while now. <laughs> like it was yeah, just I... yesterday, don't listen to him. <laughs> But yeah, no, it, it's it's one of those things I don't see that often. It's like I've seen it in one property that I can recall. So I'm going to try that. Uh, I would love to see somebody try to cosplay the Tauri or Tori, depending on how you want to play with the verbs, because they're basically um, velociraptors if they stood up straight. And, you know, the small ones are at least six foot. <laughs> Isn't the Tauri what the um, they called humans in Stargate as well? Yes, it is. Oh, it is? All right. Tauri, 
Yeah. Okay. I'll, I will take your word on that. I got, I saw the movie once. I saw the TV show never. Well, see, I yeah, the they didn't really theater. do it much in the movie. It was really more of a thing in the show. Okay. People keep telling me the show's great. I'll have to take them. I'll, I'll have to try it one of these days. Christopher Judd's adorable. Indeed. Okay. Well, the, the highlight a lot of people tell me is, you know, you get to see MacGyver with a gun. <laughs> and they do make like, some jokes in there. Samantha Carter makes some jokes about him as MacGyver. <laughs> yes. Those are really kind of priceless. They actually, they've done some behind the scenes interviews and then we'll get back to his last fandom question where she said it was actually a joke. It wasn't even in the script and then they just kept it. She was just being saucy because it was like the 12th take of something and she was just like, yeah, I've had enough. Some of the most iconic scenes in film were when the actors had just had enough. And they were like, I'm just going to you know, take you and your script and shove it. Yeah, Indiana Jones, the marketplace scene. The guy with yeah, the sword. I was thinking about that. <laughs> if you count, he was technically out of bullets. <laughs> but who cares because that scene was awesome and there have been plenty of movies that have recreated that scene oh yeah where <laughs> it's just awesome anyway doc fandom put your, okay, put your what is your weirdest down. or funniest interaction with a fan since you've started writing uh well uh weirdest is well let's just say that one female fan Kind of confused me for the character I wrote. Now, while I will grant, a lot of me does go into these characters and a lot of different parts of me end up in different characters. I ain't my characters. <laughs> and um, I, I, I didn't quite realize just how confused she was between me and the character. So it, it, it got a little weird there for a while and I, I will that's a new with... answer from last interview yeah well it's well. it took me a while to... last interview i really didn't think of this as a fan interaction it's like well stalker i mean the line is thin yeah it 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 didn't quite get the stalker it, it didn't quite get there i i've never had one thank that I know of. I've had a stalker, but I don't think I've ever had to deal with the fan stalker line. So yeah, well, it it, it was interesting. That that, that was. That, I mean, that, you that's can just do what version. I did and put landmines in your yard, and the neighbors stay away. Yeah, but we still have to have we have problems enough getting our mail. <laughs> fair, fair. You got to leave a path for the mailman. All right, I'll, I'll give you that. So, uh, right, this is the part, dear listener, where we talk about everything Declan Finn has written. So, can you please give us the Reader's Digest version of your uh, body of work? Reader's Digest version. Okay, here we go. It Was Only on Stun is my first book. It's interesting because it is a murder mystery at a science fiction convention uh, where half the convention comes to the rescue because, oh, look, the guys in the Stormtrooper armor are local cops or Marines or several other armed services. Um, the Pious Trilogy is starts off as a thriller, turns into a political thriller, turns into a war novel, uh, which then leads to the historical footnotes version the and an anthology of stories based around the Pious Trilogy. Um, I did one book on called For All Their Wars Are Merry, where I look at Irish 
Irish rebel songs where they blow shit, blow stuff up uh, for a few hundred years. Oh yeah. And it's come strangely in handy lately. Uh, (laughs) I'm tracking. I'm tracking. Yeah. Uh, Let's see what, well, what else is there? I've got two more thrillers that are, one is called two secret service and dances with werewolves. Uh, Dances with werewolves. Yeah. Dances with werewolves is more uh, live and let die modern style. But did you cast Kevin Costner for it? No, I didn't. <laughs> like, Next opportunity. Yeah, I haven't liked him in anything since Bodyguard. Uh, <laughs> and even that was like, yeah, I'm not sure how some of this writing works. Um, let's see. The I, men- I mentioned the apocalyptic books I have done, the which got me one of the Dragon Award nominations, uh, where it's basically World War III was a nice small nuclear war. Uh, and you know, the only part of California that really survived is San Francisco and thereabouts because it wasn't important to blow up. Um, but it becomes, and it becomes a great place to dump political prisoners that you never want to see again. Um, so I have the next four books are the love at first bite quartet. It's my version of, uh, Paranormal romance, if you count Vatican ninjas, uh, rocket-propelled grenades, the mob fighting vampires, uh, and, you know, Renfield, spec up Renfield minions. I've been trying to convince him to get that in audiobook. He says for enough money he'll come to my house and read it to me, but I don't know if I can afford him yet. Well, I'm I'm not... Do you really want to listen to my voice reading for endless hours? <laughs> it's like, book one, 12 hours later. It's like, good God, I want to get stick knives in my ears so I don't have to listen. Um, but uh, hold on. And I've got 12 books in St. Tommy NYPD, which is action, horror, urban fantasy, depending on how you want to count it. Um, and you got three books in white ops. And I hope... That's all of them. <laughs> Fair. I thought you'd just give me series names, but that works too. Um, and we got to make fun of Doc, which is always a plus. So, and while oh, I got you, I got you. Oh, get... hold on. One thing just for Siska, because uh, I forgot the sequel to It Was Only Unstun, and technically a sequel to Pius Trilogy, called Set to Kill, which was set at a different sci-fi convention set in Atlanta called WiverinCon. Honest. Gee, nope. I don't yeah. know what that could have been. Yeah, and, and the murder mystery centered around uh, one group of called uh, Depressed Puppies, and the other one was uh, Puppy Kickers uh, and uh, Hydrophobic Puppies. So I, I had fun. <laughs> I'm guessing that one falls under the satire satire category. Oh, there was a lot of satire, and there was also a lot of shooting because I just figured the category of Declan gets himself in trouble. Well, nobody's got. I haven't gotten in trouble yet for that one. I'm not sure anyone read that. Okay, a few people have read that one. There are reviews, but it was just a matter of I I was having fun. Uh, There are people who showed up in there because they wanted to be in the book, and. I really wanted to see, I, I had even more scenes of, yes, uh, somebody is trying to kill our hero. Welcome to, you know, random guy because 
oh, look, there are Bayan authors. I'm sure I did not call them that, but it's like, try to imagine some poor schmuck trying to assault anybody in the convention during daylight hours inside a hotel. And it's like, you know, oh, look, Larry Correa is right over there. <laughs> John Ringo is right over there, and he's got a hangover and cranky. Uh, although so between... <laughs> and... You know, although it's kind of a toss-up between who's scarier, John Ringo or Miriam, his wife. Oh, Miriam, because oh yeah, John is squeamish. Miriam is not. Yeah. So, so. I, I had a lot of fun. There was satire elements. Um, you know, I, I wound up referring to one author as uh, a Martinez. Because, you know, he was so white, he couldn't even pronounce Martinez correctly. Um, you know, and of course, he, of course, he wore this weird floppy hat and was overweight and wrote a book hey. series that he will never finish. Hey, my Lieutenant Martinez was blonde-haired, petite, and blue-eyed. Yeah. And on that note, we hope we didn't scare away our sponsors, but we're going to pause for a moment while we <laughs> shamelessly shill for the man. Hey there. This is author Katie Cross. I'm coming at you with an offer for a best-selling fantasy audiobook titled Flame, and it's totally for free. Here's a little bit more about it. Dragon servants Sana and Isadora Spence live deep in Leadham Wood, where persnickety dragons and wars on the borders are the least of their worries. Thanks to years of simmering tension, the hidden village is destined to crack, and soon. Sana's deep love for the giant beast causes her to make an irreversible mistake— while Isadora's disinterest in the dragons leads her to a fateful decision that will change the course of the entire world. Can the sisters prevent everything they know from falling apart? Or do they allow it to break and pave the way for new growth? Join the beloved Sister Witches in Flame, the first book in the Dragon Master trilogy. Just go to www.katiecrossbooks.com forward slash flame dash audiobook to get your free copy today. All right, thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. We hey. hope we didn't scare you away with all that uh, talk. I love it. She was my favorite lieutenant of my entire time in the service, and I still kept in keep in touch with her. Cool. That is good. And so we uh, we appreciate you sticking. Mm. That is not yeah. possible. Magic like that does not exist. It helps that she started enlisted. Okay, then I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. So while all of those sound fascinating, as we uh, hinted at earlier, actually we didn't even hint. We just were like plow right through that wall. Uh, we're here to talk about White Ops. So where did you come up with the premise for this universe? Without giving us the um, fanfic in question, like other than that, how did you come up with it? Was it psychedelics, Ouija board, one too many late night chanting sessions with your friendly monks? Well, uh, no, part, part of that was uh, in the early days when I was writing um, – it was during the summer. I had nothing better to do. I didn't like people. Still don't. If I did, I wouldn't be a writer. Um, and I, I would relate to that so hard. I don't like people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I, I just started writing. And, you know, even within the show I watched that was heavy, heavy in lore and culture and backstory, it's like, you know, there are these great gaping holes. Let me explain those because that's the only way this next scene will work. And I wound up going down the rabbit hole so hard. Uh, it's like, by the time I'm done, it's book six. And it's like, um, yeah, even for fan fiction, this no longer looks like what it start. This no longer looks like the thing I started out as. So I had to, you know, and 
of course, by the time I was done, I went back and having written all that stuff, I was, you know, I had more practice, so I was better at it. And I was reading through and it's like, wow, this is terrible. This is, this is truly awful. Let me rewrite this. Um, and of course, by the time I was done with the first round, uh, book six, uh, I, I had basically rewired my brain. So it was always processing story elements. And it got so bad that it's like, yeah, I need a notebook by my, by my bed so I can write down these ideas so they'll leave me alone and I can go, go to sleep. So yes. I figure, okay, uh, I'm a writer, whether I like it or not, my brain is not letting, giving me much of an option. And can I do anything with this? Can I publish this? Hell no. <laughs> so um, now I'm, I'll move on to other projects and come back to this. Uh, you know. Well, it's 24 years later. And, well, I, I finally hit it with a hammer enough and reworked it enough that the first three books were good to go. I sent it to a publisher. And it's like, yeah, we like it. Cool. And they had no idea that it had started as fan fiction. So, um, although I, I will admit a few years ago, I was talking to Tony Weisskopf at, uh, at DragonCon. For some reason, I can always get into conversations with more people at DragonCon than LibertyCon, which is counterintuitive, but whatever. And uh, she actually, Tony actually told me that uh, uh, Bujold, uh, yeah. I forget her first names. Um, Louise. Hmm? Louise. Yeah. Uh, that Louise Bujold. Masters, right? Louise yeah. Bujold. Yes, yes. Louise McBasters Bujold had started out writing Star Trek fan fiction, and then she rewrote it enough and turned it in her first book. It's like, okay, I no longer feel bad. <laughs> so, um, and it's been a lot of hitting this thing with a hammer to make it work, make it look different than uh, pretty much everything else. Granted, I threw in a whole bunch of moments and references to other science fiction uh, elements because I figure a lot of people going forward are going to be inspired by science fiction. Um, I'm not sure if you are aware, uh, but NASA a few years ago was working on a space construction vehicle. And, you know, they had what they thought was the perfect design. Unfortunately, it was the patent was owned by J. Michael Straczynski because it was used on Babylon 5. <laughs> it was the Star Fury design, the fighters. Oh. And that. Awkward. Yeah. And so NASA went to Joe Straczynski and went, uh, Can we use this? And Joe said, Sure. On one condition, you call it a Star Fury. And. The joke at the time was, you know, you know how copyright seemed to keep it getting extended every time uh, Mickey Mouse looks like he's about to go out of copyright. Yeah. So the joke was that, you know, 300 years later, uh, Star Furies are still under copyright. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm not sure if I even kept the term Star Fury in there. It was one of the early, it was one of the mid drafts. It's one of those things of, like, like Jim Butcher has said at conventions, it's like, don't ask me for 
really specific details because that might I don't remember which draft I ended up finally publishing. <laughs> uh, what I love is every time that he says that, the immediate next question is something that is ridiculously stupid at level of detail. Of course it is because Murphy. So you you started with this as your first work, and then you life moved on. You published, you know, urban fantasy horror. You're basically genre fluid or Project ADD. I'm not sure which, based on your list of finished works. Uh, maybe a little of both. Column A, column B. So what made you decide to branch out from that where you've established yourself and dive into the space opera sort of field to publish this series? Uh, mostly it's a matter of I've already got these books. I've got these. I, I just have them sitting in my computer. Why am I not getting rid of them? Why am I not publishing them? Sorry. <laughs> getting rid of them sounds like I'm hitting the delete key. I'm not. But it's basically There's a matter of... Just gasped. Her breath. Oh. No, don't get rid of my book. You know, gasp for breath. Ah, yeah, no, no. It's like, I've got them. Why not publish them? And I figured, I originally figured, you know, okay, fine. I'm going to self-publish them, but I'll, I'll bounce them off of a few publishers just in case. And I had two different publishers say yes. Like, okay, cool. I'm not complaining. <laughs> okay. Um. So before we did publish this, or did I, you go with the publisher? I went with the publisher, Tuscany Bay Press. Okay. Uh, Silver Empire Press. Uh, I made a slight mistake. Um, I gave them books as soon as I finished writing them. So uh, they, since I had nothing better to do in 2020, uh, for reasons that everyone knows. Uh, you know, it's like I finished three to four books that year, and I just dropped all of them on Silver Empire Press, <laughs> and they're like, "Hi, you know, we can't publish all of these at once, right? We're we've got other writers, you know that, don't you?" Like, yeah, sure, go ahead. I, I've got other things to work on. I've got six other projects, uh, and this was one of them. So it wound up at Tuscany Bay. Okay. All right, so before we dig in, we're going to take a moment to talk about this cover. So let me pull that up on the screen. So what is the story behind this cover? It's definitely not what I expect when I look at a sci-fi cover. So how did you come to this image? Well, I came to the image uh, from two perspectives. One, I did not want any generic space station or generic spaceship on, on the front cover because that's so many different books. Uh, I can't even keep track. There, there, there are some books which some of these some of these sci-fi covers are so generic, even from publishers I like. Where it's like I, I don't want another bloody spaceship. Can can we do something that's more uh, personal, a person to start with? Because you know a, a lot of this is more about people than about hardware. And they said, okay, fine, and. Uh, considering that a large element of the story involves there's an inter there is an invasion from another galaxy and I mean galaxy uh, I go into details in the story that's they're basically sitting back waiting and watching to see 
what players they have to take out. And so they're just sending out scouts. They're keeping a low key. They're looking at everything. So hence the giant eye that's kind of made of stars. Okay. okay. Fair. Uh, this one's a little bit too um, not colorblind friendly. So I'm just going to smile and nod and let Doc ask the next question. <laughs> You're... Did she freeze? We scared she her. She froze. Um, okay. So, what would you? What? Uh, uh, we so, what would the thirty-second? Okay. So, what? All right. Rephrase the question. Re restate the question because the audio went out. What would your thirty-second elevator pitch for this book be? Um. Imagine if Bay and Books uh, published uh, Deep Space Nine or Babylon Five, because there are similar aspects. Um, you know, okay, we do have a space station. It's a subplot. Uh, we do have an intergalactic war. Uh, we do have a lot of dealing with individual people. Um, and, and the Bayon aspect comes from, yeah, we've got people who are doing top-down grand strategy. We've got boots on the ground people who are actually getting shot at. Uh, although even the people on the higher levels also get shot at, um, so, and a lot of my influences growing up were, you know, all of the above, really. 90% um, of the science fiction I read is either Bayon or Timothy Zahn. <laughs> um, okay. Good choices. Yeah. yeah. And I would actually say that Timothy Zahn taught me a lot of how to have characters think their way out of tactical situations. Because yes, even that's always, mm, go ahead. That's a, that's always a good strategy. Sometimes people like to let the tech solve all their problems, but that's just not true yeah. to form. Oh, well, sometimes I, the tech causes some of the problems. Indeed, bingo. It's, it's not you know to go back to Star Trek, the holodeck, the transporter. It's like, hi, can we get a, can we get OSHA in here? Did does OSHA not exist in the Star Trek universe? Because I think the transporter and the holodeck would both be banned after the first five times they tried to either kill the ship or kill crew members. So those were just plot devices where when they were out of ideas, they could do. It was like the modern sitcom where when they don't know what to do, they go to Disneyland. And in sci-fi, they, you know, have the holodeck. Well, Star Trek, they had the holodeck and, and the transporter. Mm -hmm. It was yeah, filler. That's what it was. Ah. True enough. Um yeah, and with Timothy Zahn, even when he was doing Star Wars, um, he'd have almost every character from Mara Jade to the original cast of Star Wars think their way through problems, you know, and innovative use of lightsabers, for example. <laughs> like, yes, somebody is trying to bury me alive in rocks. We're on a space station. I've got a lightsaber. I'm just going to cut large holes in the floor so the rocks just flow down below, and that's just one offhand example. Uh, the the bad news, dear listener, is this was way longer than 30 seconds for an elevator pitch. So unless oh. the elevator broke, they you would have gotten off. The bad the elevator, news been, the elevator pitch stopped that awesome book. You the, elevator, awesome book. the elevator pitch was, you know, if Bayon wrote Babylon 5 or Deep Space Nine, period. Uh, That's I was just trying to be funny and you went all serious on me. <laughs> Doc does this to me too. It just it's bad. It's bad. So, you let your facts and reality get in the way of my jokes. 
But what is it that makes your series kind of special and stand out? Is it just because you have your characters always thinking things all the way through? Well, I try to make the character. I make the I try to make the characters unique. I don't have a lot of. If there is something like it, I don't know it, um, because I have my my characters are basically part of space. Knights Templar or Space Paladins, uh, if, if you want to refer to either that way, uh, I don't see a lot of I don't see a lot of Dyson spheres unless it's what David Weber's Dahak series, and that's even he hasn't touched that in a while, um, and I basically try to bring in a whole bunch of various. Uh, combination of factors that I think makes this unique, you know? Like, why do people have one type of mech? Why do people, you know, it's like, here, okay, we're going to have mechs, they're the tank units, we're going to have uh, heavy armored infantry, um, you know, that are a little, that are shorter, but heavily armored. We're going to have guys that, in my draft, Again, I don't remember if I use this. It's like, yeah, people who are basically army rangers are covered in what they call Spartan Six armor. Uh, at which point the aliens go, "What happened to the first five? Uh, it's like, we long do story. Don't ask. <laughs> so that's right up there with the Klingon ridges. We just don't talk about the early versions. Uh, no, it's it would actually harken back to the whole, uh, you know, steamboat right. See Steamboat Willie Event Horizon, where it, it's a Halo reference to the video games. And it, it looks like the Halo armor, and they still have the copyrights to it. So, you know, this one video game company is still getting paid by the military. We don't know why, <laughs> because freaking bureaucracy. And I can buy that, actually. I know. And that's the depressing part. So. What is it that makes your series truly? Um, sorry, I already asked that question. So, which tropes do you think that you really hit on White Ops best with this? Which tropes? Um, no, the, the tropes I hit are uh, people who go into battle and who really enjoy their work. Uh, um, I've been describing to anyone who will listen on social media, you know, um, you know, our, our, our main character who I, who is Sean Patrick Ryan, uh, used to go around fixing problems for fun and profit. And then the war started and now he just does it for fun. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I don't see too much of that mentality in science fiction set into the farther future, even though I, I, I know people who personally who have been in the military, it's like, yeah, getting shot at can be fun. <laughs> Which at times, yeah, mostly but, when they miss, it's fun when they miss. Oh yeah. Um, I think it was it. Yeah. Some, there is some variation on, you know, there is no exhilaration like being shot at without effect. Uh, which goes back to at least the Napoleonic Wars, if not earlier. Uh, if there's a saying in Latin or ancient Egyptian, I wouldn't be surprised. But You're actually quoting Winston Churchill, nothing in life is so exhilarating yes. as to be shot at without a result. Yes. Uh, 
Um, yeah, but I've heard uh, that attributed to Civil War generals as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a good thing war is hell. Otherwise, you know, it would be so enjoyable. I think that was Sherman. Um, yeah. And like I said, Wellington had a, a variation on it in the Napoleonic Wars. I think George Washington had a different version, but it was similar in meaning. Uh, but I don't get that in like, you know, I don't get... I don't get a lot of space berserkers who are humans. <laughs> you know, I get space berserkers who are Klingons. Uh, or sometimes just carbon copies of Klingons. Um, so, so I hope the characters and the aliens are, at the very least, highly unique. Uh, so you've talked a little bit about your, your problem committing to a genre and subgenre and tropes. You're all over the place, and that's sort of what, what makes you you as an author. But what's if you had to pick what subgenre or genre do you think uh, white ops fits into? Space opera, because okay. it really dumps in so much into it. Um, I was actually on a podcast. I was I recorded a podcast uh, the other day where people had read the book, and they're going, "There's so much stuff in here. What what, what exactly? What genre do you put it in? Under other than science fiction in general, it's like space opera, because." You know, I threw in everything but the kitchen sink. Fair. That is definitely that's, space opera. That's the way Doc likes it, though. She thinks they should all just be jumbled up under one bookshelf in the back alley of a Barnes and Noble. So she's weird like that. But um, I so think that it is a marketing ploy and a participation trophy. You could be wrong. So now on to the story itself. So why don't you tell us about your main character or characters? What makes them special in the crowded field of science fiction? Um, well, in uh, the case of Sean Ryan, he's basically working the family business. Uh, and the family business is uh, piracy for the greater good. You know, uh, the family business started out where, yeah, Way back when, they were taking out terrorists and stealing their money because terrorists are scumbags. Somebody has to do it. The government's hit or miss as to whether or not they're doing their job on that. So, you know, their premise was we're going to steal, kill terrorists, take their stuff, and use it to buy more stuff to kill more terrorists. Repeat as needed. And I figure if you expand that forward a while, you're going to have a nice little nest egg. The interest alone after 300 years is going to be something else. And um, this was something that was going to happen to a somebody in my thriller series. They were going to start it. Um, and a thriller series I had written after I originally did White Ops. Uh, this is part of the rewrite. And, you know, and then aliens came and they wanted to come in quietly because you never know how these barbarian locals are going to start are going to react and uh, they, they figured out based on their culture um, you know they, they like a lot of robes with specific colors for specific casts and uh, well we've got one place on the planet where we've got a guy dressed in solid white that means he must be high ranking and from what we can tell they talk to everybody on the planet. Therefore, this guy they call Pontiff must be in charge of the planet. It's like, you know, so you have the aliens doing a covert 
you know, first contact at the Vatican, the Vatican's going like, uh-huh, okay, we're going to recall in some consultants who are the pirates who, who take out terrorists. Uh, it's previously established, honest. And the aliens hear about, wait, so you were doing good deeds, taking out bad people, and you're, you're doing it for the greater good. This fits with our several aspects of our culture. We're going to take this idea, thank you very much, and, you know, you take that to an alien culture, shake well for 300 years, and it comes out with something completely different. And um, so our main character is kind of part of this alien operation, but he's part of the founding series. And when a massive war breaks out, they're hitting two species. Uh, one are the aliens he's been hanging out with and his family has been hanging out with for hundreds of years. And the others are, they're hitting Earth. So it's like, okay, we need to have a long conversation with Earth. Uh, and he's kind of the go-between. And as he's going back and forth, he's doing general analysis because he's not a soldier. He's, at, if you're being nice, he's a warrior. If you're not being nice, he's a sneaky some, he's a sneaky bugger who blows things up, sometimes with nukes. And uh, it's like, you know, their tech is really good. The, 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 the alien invaders have solid tech. They are on par with the aliens who have established, uh, you know, the spinoff of this human culture. Problem, when you meet them in person or on the ground, they're almost incompetent. Do we think these people created this tech? No. In which case, either A, they found this tech, unlikely, because that means they would need to develop it. And two, if they didn't develop this tech, somebody gave it to them. In which case, if somebody gave them this tech, well, when you're trying to colonize a new region, you don't give your most advanced toys to the natives, even if the natives are working for you. So whoever is out there and pushing these guys to invade are probably just giving pop guns. They're giving the equivalent of muskets while the guys from the guys behind them have, you know, mortar rounds and nukes. So we've got only so much time to prepare and develop new technology and hope we don't get our asses kicked. And while everyone is fighting the main war, he's trying to develop for the next war and hope, you know, hope they brace for impact. And in part of that, he develops the white ops team as a, team, a spe special operations unit to take out threats as they develop and while everyone is trying to build up to ba basically fight the next war. Okay, so what about secondary characters? Are there any that speak uh, to you in this series that you really liked writing? Oh, I enjoyed all of them, really. Um, 
uh, with the aliens who are called the Renar. Uh, I enjoyed designing their look, which we mentioned earlier. Um, I had a lot of fun with certain tropes. Um, my family background involves a lot of uh, medicine or education in medicine. And so I, I developed a physician assistant who had been in the military, uh, but she's in the religious caste. So her, her approach to problems is a little sideways. It's like, yes, this patient went nuts. And the religious one takes her takes him down, and she just goes, well, to deal with patients, first you have to get their attention. Yes, do no harm is a thing, but again, you, you got to keep them calm first. Uh, you know, things like that. Uh, I enjoyed writing all of them, really, uh, especially one guy where it's like he's got a 200 IQ, and he's also a little bit of a flake here and there. So uh, watching things from his perspective... Uh, unfortunately, again, since I developed him 20-some-odd years ago, uh, I, I hate to use this, but he, he, reading him now, uh, later, it's like, damn it, why does he sound like Benedict Cumberbatch from Sherlock? He's not even British! <laughs> I get that. So, so, go ahead, Doc. I was going to ask about the bad guys. So, can you talk a bit about the bad guys? Because you oh, definitely yeah. have some in the here. Oh yeah, well, um, with the bad guys, I kind of wanted, I wanted a epic Lord of the Rings feeling on multiple levels. Uh, yeah, sure, they've got the technology, they are badass, um, they have a, a type of organic technology. I know that's not new, even Farscape had a kind of organic technology, but um when I originally designed them, they're a little bit insectoid with uh, a horse-like, you know, not a horse-like body, uh, spider-like body from the waist down, from the waist up. It's still armored like an insect, but has teeth like a crocodile. Then I read John Ringo's uh, Pausling War series, and it's like, mother, it's the same, it's a similar design. Okay. Time to redesign. So I did some of that and made them even more insectoid. Um, but the special thing about them is twofold. One, they have, uh, they are naturally camouflaged. You know, um, they're several steps up from, uh, from, get, from uh, chameleons. And they also are highly telepathic to the extent of they influence people at high ranks by basically appealing to their darker nature. Uh, I, I keep referring to it in my head, at least, as the one ring effect, because yes, this one thing is not, its, it's threat is not external. Its threat is it will bring out whatever darkness is in you. And that's basically what they, what these aliens do. Um, uh, the anime, uh, yeah, I got a little cute with Latin. Um, basically act like that, and it's... So, what is your deepest desire? We can arrange it for you. It's not explicitly stated, because they're trying to be covert about this. And then the other bad guy, uh, who is a politician, because aren't they all, uh, has a wife who is a telepath, who both 
sees these aliens and directly makes a deal with them. Were you inspired by Faust? Oh, well, as far as I'm concerned, every politician is some kind of Faustian bargain. Fair. All right, Doc, save us from ourselves. We don't want to uh, get too political here. Yeah, you guys are... I know, it gets wonky real quick with us. Very funny. Um, so if your characters met you in a back alley, how do you think you would survive? Like, how do you I, see I, that playing out for you? I'd hope they'd want to buy me a drink and not be pissed off at all the things I've done to them. Because <laughs> otherwise, no, I, I, I'd be screwed. They Too many of them deal with heavy weaponry, uh, uh, armor-piercing rounds, and nuclear weapons. Uh, and Sean Ryan himself is six foot six. So, no, I, I'd be do screwed. You do you explain what makes them so tall? That's sort of abnormal. Is it genetic engineering or is he just a freak show? Oh, he's just a freak show. Uh, everyone else is relatively normal. Uh, but I, when I was originally designed this, again, 16, uh, I wanted somebody who is more or less a, a juggernaut. So I figured, yes, he has to be, you know, this big. And, uh, you know, when I wound up developing ancestors for him who starred in my thrillers... You know, it's like, well, they've got to start out shorter, otherwise uh, this is going to get weird very fast. So, so <laughs> are all of your series linked like this, or just some of them? Uh, there are connections. that. Okay. There, there is a lot of connective tissue uh, for, uh, let, let's just say that with my uh, St. Tommy series, I was explicitly told by my publisher that there were to be absolutely uh, no crossovers. Uh so far, he has not made mention of uh, a lot of side characters who have appeared in multiple franchises. <laughs> so, um, okay. so either A, he doesn't care about the minor characters, or B, I've gotten away with it so far. <laughs> as long as he doesn't listen to this interview, we're good. All right. So you've told us about, so we'll, we'll skip that question, all about the universe, which sounds intriguing. Uh, is Tuscany, Tuscany Bay going to do an audiobook? Tuscany Bay is working on an audiobook at the moment. Um, I actually okay. had to mention it specifically because of Amazon's audio uh, interface called ACX has been giving them and everyone else I know really uh, a bit of a bother. So uh, there is another system they use for publishing in general called Draft to Digital that just came out with an audiobook uh, format section. So I'm going to be the guinea pig. Cool. So we'll see how well that works. All right. We'll have to report back to us offline about that one because our audience doesn't care about the book side of things. They we just always knew you were an experiment, Declan. <laughs> this explains oh, yeah. so much. So we know that every literary universe has its own consistent rules of science, technology, and or magic. So what sort of tech or um, can we expect from these books? Um, I'm not going too far into the future on anything. Um, mainly because I can only project so far out without being a theoretical physicist. I've got some plasma guns. I've got some. I've got several variations on uh, rail guns because we already know these things are either in development or have been developed. And I just figure a lot of what comes in the future is going to be just making that smaller. 
Um, you know, I, I've, I've got several variations, as I said, on armored suit, on powered armor. Uh, the most advanced power, the most advanced tech I have for the non non anime uh, or anima uh, race is basically nanotech armor that has multiple functions, and uh, it's a long story, but uh, it's not too far out there. I don't have a lot of, I do not have a ton of hand wavium, um, although. One of my friends, many moons ago, suggested, well, once you get to artificial gravity, what's to stop you from having a singular a singularity generator in the ship? It's like, so you want to run the ship on a black hole? Okay, I guess I can do that. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Oh, uh, well, oh, one of the questions you did not ask me, and because, again, I could not remember all the various drafts. I did have one sequence that I had to rewrite. And I do remember it. And this brought it up. I was going to have one of the top generals get kidnapped by the Anima. And they were going to take him to their planet and work him over until he worked for them. And they stole one of his ships, which had a singularity drive ran on a singularity generator and his counter maneuver was to get on a life pod get the bleep out of there and set the reactor to blow as it went after the anima home planet and you know it and basically yeah we know the uh planet isn't a planet it's a ship how do we know this because you hit it with a black hole and you dented it so that got rewritten. <laughs> okay. So we know other franchises have messed with that kind of stuff, and they didn't sound as exciting as what you just did. So we're gonna we're gonna call that one uh, a win in your column, and we won't talk about they who shall not be named. Uh, Doc, you, you ready for this? Hmm. Your question is next. Put the knitting down. No. <laughs> she's uh, trying not to stab us so she's stabbing yarn it's therapeutic she says it is therapeutic I'll explain it when you're older so <laughs> of all this tech what would you use for uh, everyday life oh I, I would use some of the um, there are some hardwired implants that run off of body fat it's like Ooh, sign yeah, me up yeah I know, right? It's like, yeah, well, I, I, I can use, I can afford to lose a few pounds. I'm, I would love to have cybernetic implants that do anything, really, even if it were just to, so I don't need to use these anymore. And, you know, I would love to use those. So how would you abuse it? Just by making yourself all ripped all of a sudden? Oh, probably. It, it, would, it would be utterly ridiculous. Uh, now, granted, the problem with that would be I'd have to shop for new clothing and I god I hate shopping but I'll live with it. <laughs> yeah, That's it's a, it's a minor inconveniences for for such a, a great boon. So, so can um you, we've already covered that you have aliens in them and we, you've talked a bit about how you designed them 
But is there anything you wanted to add to that? Not, well, part of what I did with the alien design with uh, their casts, uh, again, I'm a historian. I stole the medieval caste system from late medieval. Um, there are some quibbles. There are some historians who will quibble with you on classifying medieval, where um, originally you had the medieval period uh, caste system of uh, soldiers, peasants, and the religious. Later on in the Middle Ages, you had the merchant class. So I basically broke up this one society into four different parts. Uh, there's some overlap, obviously. Um, I wound up designing uh, an entire designing an entire political system around it for representation and making sure everything's everything is in balance uh, that sort of thing and after that it's like okay now i have to design the planet for this because we, we need at least one continent that looks like the shire especially if you're going to have all these people who are quote peasants and you know one section that's industrial and i it spiraled from there um with uh, the design, with the color scheme for the Renar, um, I don't know. I would almost say I stole it. I, I, I borrowed from D and D or something. I generally don't know where I came up with the idea of, you know, oh yeah, the bone ranges look like uh, stone. The skin tones are all metallic, and the eyes are bitonal. Uh, I think the bitonal eyes I had thought of twenty some odd years ago for a different context and thought. You know what? I'm doing aliens. I don't have to play by the rules. Yeah. So, stuff like that. JR, your question. So I, I know. I had uh, interruptions from the minions who now owes me $5. Um, so I love it when people listen to my parenting advice. I mean, you also wanted me to stab them. I don't know what that was about, but clearly this interview is winding down. So before we wrap this up, was there anything about White Ops that we didn't ask you you wanted to tell us? No, no. There's nothing I can think of offhand. You, and let's say, I think I over-answered one or two questions. It happens. Um, I mean, Doc didn't fall asleep. She just got to knitting, so we're halfway between, you know, wine passing her out and, and us boring her. But when I get with people that like history, it just be like that sometimes. So, all right. So before I let you go, dear listener, I'd like to harken back Dab to our time. You tried. I was quicker than you. I'd like to harken back to our time under our old moniker where once we like to remind you that uh, – your thoughts matter, so please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part. And if you're especially motivated, you can also go to places like BookBub, Goodreads, or start your own website just to review books. Authors will love you forever. So having shamelessly shilled for the book review, you know, Doc, we really ought to do an episode where we talk just about the value of book reviews. Let's well. pencil that in. We should do an episode where we talk just about the value of schedules and JR food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Schedules. Figuring things out. Never mind. Let's not talk about that. So Declan, uh, before <laughs> she mocks me again relentlessly and talks about my mother was a hamster or something, how can listeners find you? Uh, they can find me pretty much all over the internet. Uh, 
because it's part of book selling. Uh, every time a social media platform pops up, I'm on it. I'm on Declan. I'm at. I'm. You can find me with a Facebook page on Facebook page. Uh, my personal Facebook page. Both are under Declan Finn. Uh, I've got a Twitter account. It's Declan Finn Books. I've got a Parlor account, which I think is just Declan Finn or Declan Finn Inc. I'm on Gab, if you've ever heard of it. Uh, I go there, post stuff, and leave. Wait, wait, uh, wait. If he's on all the social media sites, does that mean you have an OnlyFans, too? Uh, is that even... Con if I did not know that was considered social media. I don't know. Uh, Nick tries to tell us his social media. So this is a inside joke, but at one point in time... Patreon was banning everybody for wrong think, and if you didn't agree with their political opinions, they kicked you off the site. In protest, OnlyFans was created. It was supposed to be competition for Patreon with a support for creators. It quickly got taken over by other industries, shall we say. Before that happened, our co-host, Nick Garber, comic book extraordinaire, created one for his art, and then when it became something else, he forgot about it until years later. And now the running joke is he has an OnlyFans account, and we keep trying to talk and put his picture of his nasty, gnarly feet on there, but he won't do it. Something about pride and his wife. I don't know what that's all about. Yeah, no, if yeah. I wound up with an OnlyFans account, it would be, you know, me reading books with my face. It's like, great. He should have, <laughs> he should have pride in his wife. She's way out of his league. She is, but so Parlor Gap, all the places will be linked in yeah. this uh, show notes. His Substack is very interesting. If you want to check that out, it's also DeclanFen.substacks.com. Yeah, uh, I'm also on, I'm also on Patreon. They haven't found me yet. Uh oh, uh oh. Well, why supplies last? Hop on over there too. And like you said, we have all of these uh, on online. Uh, you're buy me a coffee, sir. You need to give yourself a personalized moniker because. CSF underscore X5KC, blah, 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 blah. No, no, just make it deck You sound like an Android. <laughs> that was the point. I'll, 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 I know. Get I'll get on that. Wait, are Android you an Android? Though. Did you come off the same line as Bezos? <laughs> what about Zuckerberg? No, you're too normal to be a Zuckerberg model. I am too normal to be a Zucker, Zuckerberg model. And unlike Bezos, I've got hair. Ouch. As a yeah. bald guy. Ouch. Yeah. All right. So uh, before Do I, I look like Lex Luthor to you? <laughs> look at Bezos sometimes. <laughs> it's like, no, he, he's Lex Luthor. We know what he so, wants to be when he grows up. So you can find us, dear listener, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Doc will answer all of your gushing fan mail. She loves it. Send it all. Uh, we have a website on anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. You can also support us there uh, with a reoccurring, much like a Patreon model, uh, for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on and pay for our stream yards and all the subscriptions that it takes to keep this thing going. That doesn't happen for free. You can also support the show on buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Uh, be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. I promise I will keep my co-host Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Never surrender. Nobody likes a quitter. Nobody likes a quitter. Those are wise words, madam. Yes. Some people even like you, though. Um, 
Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us um, and, jo and joining us with Declan Finn. For Nick Garber, J.R. Hanley, I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Blades podcast. Be back next time where we indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, picking on J.R., and of course, pineapple on pizza and the amazingness that is Star Trek. That is heresy, but as someone from New heresy York, where I'm old, it's retribution, so shush. That is heresy, Doc. But we have a, a no, an expert no on. We have an expert supposedly on pizza because that's what everyone I've met from New York says. They are the expert at pizza. And then people <laughs> from Chicago say the same thing. So we Ugh. have to keep that rivalry going and ask you, Declan, what condiments are prohibited on pizza? Anything sweet, like I don't know, fruits, pineapple. But fruits are condiments. Mm hmm. Sure, they are. All right, Declan is, is, is one of the true ones. I knew I could count on you, Declan. I knew it. You See? know what they say this is heresy. Heresy begets retribution, right? I know. I have that on a shirt. All right. Thank you, guys. We will see you next time. <laughs>